0: ABC Listen podcasts, radio, news, music, and
1: more. They were the murders that horrified Australia and left the state of South Australia reeling.
2: I guess we weren't surprised with what we found, um, given the smell coming from the place.
1: The Snowtown serial murders were discovered in 1999 when police found the remains of victims in pickling barrels in a disused bank vault in the small country town. Now, after a quarter of a century, one of the four men convicted for his part in the murders could be granted freedom within months. South Australia's Premier today, Mr Malinowskis, says the state government is looking at its legal options surrounding the
3: case. I am genuinely concerned about the prospect of release occurring to anyone associated with the Snowtown murders. These were horrific crimes. Uh, they are some of the worst we've ever seen in the history of the nation. Uh, so we need to think through our legal options very carefully and we are exploring each and every one of them and as that evolves, we will respond accordingly.
1: South Australian Premier Peter Malinouskas. On Australia-wide, what happens next in the case of the Snowtown murders? I'm Sinead Mangan, coming to you from Wajuk country, Perth. The Snowtown killings are widely considered one of the most gruesome murders in Australian history and the small regional town of Snowtown, 150km outside of Adelaide in South Australia, became synonymous with the murders as the remains of 8 of the 11 victims were found in a bank vault there in 1999. The first of four men jailed in connection with the notorious, what were known as the bodies in the barrel murders, is expected to be released from custody within months. And our reporter in Adelaide, Rebecca Bryce, has been covering this story. Thanks for talking to Australia Wide, Rebecca. My pleasure. Now, before we get into today's developments, can you take me back to May 1999? And I do actually remember this because I was a young journalist at the time and I don't know you couldn't get away from it. What led police to find those bodies in an abandoned bank vault?
2: Yes, well, certainly for anyone who was alive when it happened, it would be a very hard uh, story to forget. Um, so um, initially police had gone to Snowtown searching for um, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Hayden who um, had been missing for about six months um, and they followed the trail um, that was led by um, her her husband and, and the other, other killers to Snowtown. Um, and when they arrived there in May 1999, they came across the, uh, the bank and when they entered the bank that's when they found uh, these, these bodies in the barrels and it really it did mar that town I mean the bodies in the barrels you
1: straight away think of Snowtown did the town ever recover from that?
2: I think they're still coming to terms with the sort of grim, I guess, stain on on the town's reputation or the town's name. I mean, the town was not really um, a huge part of of the story until right at the end. It was really more that that's where the story began and where it emanated from. So only one person was actually murdered in Snowtown in the 11 um, murders that took place over seven years. Um, But it was just very much the fact that that was the first uh, crime scene that police found and and as a result of that the first location that the media went to and of course from day one it was dubbed the Snowtown murders. Now we're talking about this
1: 25 years later because one of the accused Mark Ray Hayden is set for release. How did this come to pass?
2: Well Hayden originally was charged with some murders together with the other three men who are currently serving custodial sentences for murders. Um, he went on trial charged with two counts of murder and five counts of assisting an offender. But when it came to the jury verdicts, the jury didn't agree on whether or not he was guilty of the charges of murder. So they did convict him of the um, assisting an offender. And then later on in the piece, um, the prosecution had to make a decision about whether they would take uh, put him on trial again on those murder charges. And they decided that it probably wasn't worth the risk. By that stage, um, they'd had, um, you know, a previous trial where the other two really serious murderers, John Bunting and and Robert Wagner, had had been already convicted of 11 and 10 murders um, consecutively. Um, And that went for 11 months. And then Mark Hayden's trial went for five months. So I think probably by that time, they thought it probably wasn't worth... Um, trying again on, and and risking um, risking him not being convicted, so they accepted pleas of assisting an offender for those uh, those charges as well.
1: So now, 25 years later, Mark Ray Hayden has which he has previously applied for parole, and, and the first time he was knocked back. And you've approached the parole board today. And um, what did they say? The likelihood of Mark Rayden being granted parole
2: it is a little bit complicated. There's a parole application live and also um, the May date, which is actually the end of his head sentence. So the way sentencing works in South Australia and in in, um, most jurisdictions is um, if a person presents before the court and they're found guilty of a particular crime, they're given a head sentence, which is the full custodial term that they would have to serve. And they're usually also given a non-parole period. And if they get to the end of that non-parole period and they're demonstrated to um, be safe enough to return to the community, they can apply for parole. Mark Hayden uh, was eligible to apply for parole in 2017. At the time, the parole board took a look at him and said, look, he has rehabilitated quite well, but we're not confident that he has the level of socialization to be returned to the community at this point. So they rejected that application. He made another application in 2021 and that is still a live application. When we spoke with the Parole Board Chair Frances Nelson this morning she said that they have been monitoring him, monitoring his behaviour just to make sure that some of the positive changes that he's making are long-term and not just um, short-term in order to secure release. But the other side of this is that May date this year his head sentence ends then. So even if He's not granted parole. He should still be released under the current laws as we know it in South Australia because he will have ser- will have served his entire sentence. Mm. So when he's released, how would he be monitored? Yeah, so that's the question. So um, ordinarily, if somebody serves their head sentence, um, and they can be released into the community and they don't have any restrictions. They don't have any monitoring conditions. There are some laws in South Australia that the state government can apply to the Supreme Court to ask it to put in what they call extended supervision orders, which are essentially the same as as parole conditions. Things like, you know, where he can and can't go, who he can and can't speak to, where he needs to live, what kind of work he can do. But it's not as clear-cut as that because the legislation relates to high-risk offenders and it's very specific about the kinds of people who are actually allowed to be um, classified as a high-risk offender. So I mean obviously you have people like murderers, repeat sex offenders, um, terrorists, uh, people who commit those kind of offences. There is one clause that says somebody who is convicted of perverting the course of justice in relation to a serious offence like a murder that's not what he's been convicted of. So it's it would be up to the Supreme Court to really interpret whether or not they consider him and and the conviction to fall under that definition. So it will be very interesting to see whether or not um, the, the state government gets legal advice to say it's, it's actually worth taking that, that approach.
1: Given the nature of the crime, though, this must be quite a shock for the family
2: of victims. What do they say about it? Did you get a chance to talk to them? So we reached out to many of the victims' um, relatives and friends. We spoke to quite a few of them. Uh, Not surprisingly, none of them wanted to speak. Publicly, mm. um, many of them are, are just incredibly traumatized. A lot of them didn't didn't respond to to our approaches, um, but we did speak to um, both the current Victims of Crime Commissioner and also the previous Victims of Crime Commissioner, both of whom have had quite a lot to do with their their families and the friends of the victims of Snowtown, and they both spoke of um, you know ongoing trauma, um, enduring grief, and very um, sadly, it's it's becoming intergenerational. So um, mm. the trauma that's been f- been felt by the generation who experienced it in the 1990s is is passing through to their children and their children. So it's a very, very sad case and a sad situation for those victims. And not surprisingly, they don't want Mark Hayden to be released. But the victims of crime commissioner told us that they understand that he served his sentence. And, and that's the way the law works. Mark Ray Hayden is one of four. What about the other perpetrators? Where are they in their sentencing John Bunting who was the worst of the offenders um, convicted for 11 counts of murder and also Robert Wagner who um, was convicted of 10 um, and they were without doubt the the worst of the offenders um, they were both jailed for life, um, which is the automatic term for, for murder in South Australia. And the judge at the time when he sentenced them said that he he uh, would not set non-parole periods and he he hoped that they would never be allowed to apply for non-parole periods. Um, Wagner did a few years ago uh, go to the court and ask them to set a non-parole period for him, but the court rejected his application because um, it felt that he hasn't shown enough remorse for um, what it called the worst serial killings in in, Australian, well, in South Australian history. So um, the other person um, that we haven't mentioned yet, James Blisarkis, um, was also convicted of four counts of murder. His case was a little bit different, though. So he was originally charged along with the others, but um, the police managed to convince him to plead guilty. Uh, to those four counts of murder. And as a result, he then gave evidence against the other three men. And because of that, um, you know, that crucial evidence that he gave, that was how the prosecutors were able to um, secure their their guilty verdicts on the other men. And reading through some of the trial transcript, I mean, you'd have to question if he hadn't actually um, done that. Their case would have been a lot weaker because he knew of, of a lot of crimes that he wasn't even present for. So as a result of his um, compliance and, and working with police, he did get a non-parole period set and it was 26 years and he was also arrested in 1999. So he will be allowed to apply for parole next year. Going back to Hayden, I think
1: often when you think of these cases, you think of the uh, of the perpetrators being a lot older once they leave jail, essentially, once they get out of jail. But Mark Ray Hayden, is he's a relatively young man. He's only 65. What do we know about that time in jail for him and
2: how he spent it? Well, until today, we've really not known very much at all. Um, it's difficult to get information about um, what prisoners are doing um, behind bars. Um, it's not something that the authorities are really relatively open with. But um, now that he's made parole applications, the parole board can speak to to those things. And um, Francis Nelson, the, the chair of the parole board, told us today that he's been rehabilitating very well in custody. He's been doing all the things that he's been asked to do, um, going through all the programs that he's been asked to do. He's doing well in work. And um, she did also say that he has demonstrated contrition and remorse. Um, and we, we put to her the um, question of whether he had actually reached out to the, the victims um, who were still, the, their families who were still out there. And she said that she wasn't aware that he had and, and expected that he probably would want to, but that, you know, a, a, the prime um, consideration really has to be those victims and the trauma they're going through and that that would probably re-traumatize them. Given that Hayden is due to be released in May, how urgent a matter is this for the government to look into the legislation? So if they're only looking at, um, getting a supervision order, um, that should be a relatively quick process through the courts. Um, it would be a matter of making an application to the Supreme court. Um, there would have to be reports, um, to the court. Um, so I suspect they'll probably, um, they would probably move to try to do that sooner rather than later. They might have to, uh, obviously argue that he, he, um, you know, is, is, um, what's the word is sort of contained in this legislation that, that the, the um, offence that he's committed is appropriate for the legislation. The other um, question that we put to the government today is whether they were considering legislating to prevent him from being released from custody in the first place. The lawyers that we've spoken to have said it would be pretty dangerous to go down that path, to legislate specifically just to keep one person in jail. Um, but the the uh, Premier has said they're not ruling out anything. They're, they're considering all of their options. So hasn't flatly denied that they will do that. Rebecca Bryce in South Australia, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Thanks Sinead.
4: ABC Australia wide.
1: Roadkill is a familiar sight in Tasmania, and in Tasmania's northwest, it's not just wallabies and feral cats getting hit, it's also the endangered Tasmanian devil. It's a problem for the already dwindling population of devils that have already been decimated by an infectious facial cancer. Our reporter, Beck Pridham, went out on the road to find out more.
0: Yes, I know. You're very fierce, darling. <laughs>
4: Alice Carson has two orphaned Tasmanian devils playing in her lap. Okay, so,
0: Mr. Cranky over here, he came in first. He was found walking up the middle of Wool North Road in the middle of the day by some passers-by. He was very dehydrated and quite malnourished. This other little boy here, who has more white on him, he came in a week and a half later from about 50 metres up the road. And what do you think
4: happened to their mother? Definitely killed. The road she's talking about is a notorious devil roadkill hotspot in Tasmania's far northwest. The lifeless body of a lactating female was spotted further up the 25-metre stretch. Alice has been documenting devil deaths on Wall North and West Montague Road since January 2021. Her tally has now passed 240.
0: It breaks my heart because I don't care if they're a devil or a paddy. I just, It's awful and you have to get out and you have to move them because if you don't, you'll come back and there'll be a a dead hawk on the roads or a devil that's come in at night and it got cleaned up because it was eating roadkill. In a bid to bring down
4: devil deaths, the circular head council last year reduced the speed limit from 100 kilometres per hour to 80. But Alice has counted more carnage in the six months since. Between July and December 2023, she documented 23 deaths. Over the same period in 2022, when the speed limit was still 100, it was 19 deaths and 20 in 2021. Alice takes me to the road. In the overgrown grass beside it lies a dead devil. It's stiff and flies are feasting
0: away at it. That's what we were cuddling at home a few months down the track. It's just a waste.
4: She points to the smeared bitumen. This is obviously where
0: he was hit. You can see the blood here on
4: the road. Alice reckons drivers are simply ignoring the speed limit. But Circular Head Mayor Jared Blizzard says random speed counters suggest otherwise.
5: All
1: the evidence we've got is that the majority of people, and there's always going to be... A cowboy that doesn't do it anywhere, anytime, but the majority of people are obeying the speed limit.
4: He says it's too early to see if it's working, and the council will take stock a year on from the new speed coming into effect.
1: It's like a lot of things, you, can, you put something in place, you've got to give it a chance to work to see if you've got to change it, tweak it, or go in a different direction.
4: Devil populations across the state are far from what they once were. It's impossible to get an exact figure, and populations are dynamic. But since an infectious cancer appeared in 1996, devil facial tumour disease, scientists estimate the population has declined by two-thirds. While recent research has shown the disease and the devils are evolving to coexist, University of Tasmania professor in ecology, Mena Jones, says the endangered species need protection from other sources of mortality.
0: After the devil disease... Roadkill is the most significant source of mortality for devils. It won't send them extinct by itself, but it is important that we address it to help buffer those populations.
4: A stakeholder group is exploring other ways to bring down roadkill in the area, including removing carcasses, slashing roadside vegetation to make animals more visible, and bringing in rumble strips and signage. That's as well as driver awareness,
0: which Professor Jones says is critical. It's campaigns to educate tourists coming into the state, but particularly campaigns to educate and raise awareness among locals who are driving these roads every day. They become very familiar with the road. They become very inured to any warning signs about wildlife on the road. So anything we can do to say this is really important And let's be aware of it, let's slow down, let's look out for wildlife and let's not try to hit Tasmanian devils or any other wildlife on the road. A message Alice is behind. I'd never want anyone to have an accident by trying to avoid an animal but there are things you can do. Just be mindful because we need them and they need to be in our environment to make it work. They're really important little people.
1: Certainly some sound, an orphaned baby devil in the lap of wildlife care, Alice Carson, who is chatting there to our reporter, Beck Pridham. Does the word here have one syllable for you or does it have two? And I'm going to get Alex to say this for me.
3: Here. Here.
1: And if you were going to cut a rug, would you say let's dance or dance?
3: Dance. Dance.
1: If Aussies all had one accent, you might expect the same answer. But if you've been around the country, you'll know that's not true. And if you throw in Aussies like me, it all gets very complicated very quickly. In fact, researchers have found big differences in Aussies' voices between different cultures, regions and generations. Angus McIntosh spoke to linguists and a few ABC presenters around the country to
3: learn more. Well, there it is, mate. That's her house. What do you think of it, eh?
5: It won't surprise you to hear that Australians' voices aren't all the same. But what sets one Aussie apart from another? And are those differences big enough to make something new? In fact, recent research on the diversity of Australian voices is turning our understanding of this iconic accent on its head.
6: What we're really finding now is that Australian English is diversifying in all sorts of really interesting ways.
5: Professor Felicity Cox is one of the linguists leading the effort to understand Australian English. She says the field has undergone a massive shift in understanding what exactly makes Aussie accents unique.
6: There was a lot of conversation about the fact that we wouldn't end up with a lot of variation in the 70s. But in fact, the opposite's happening. There's a huge amount of variation now. And I think that that's really exciting.
5: The biggest differences in Aussie's voices occur in the vowels. Think of Victorians saying Melbourne in place of Melbourne or Queenslanders saying school for school. The University of Melbourne's Dr Debbie Lokes has studied those regional differences and found that not only are they real, they're changing.
6: A study that was recently published was looking at L and L and how people respond when they hear those words. And what I found was in Warrnambool the sound change was advancing so that meant more people were merging those two sounds together. Whereas in Mildura, only the older people were doing that and it was like this sound change had reversed in the younger community.
5: Background and culture is another point of difference in Aussie's voices. Linguists have long distinguished between the broad, ocker Aussie accent and the so-called general accent, more or less like mine. There's also what they call a cultivated Australian accent. Think of someone like Kate Blanchett or an old-fashioned ABC reporter. I say old-fashioned because the ABC's signature cadence and tone isn't quite what it used to be. Just compare my voice to this reporter from 60 years ago, or to the little girl he's interviewing. What languages do you think should be taught in Australian schools? Chinese, Latin, French. You're a very shrewd little girl. What languages are you learning yourself? Oh, we an Australian. For comparison, here's what ABC WA presenter Andrew Collins has to say today.
3: When I first applied for a job at the ABC, this was in Broken Hill, 17 years ago, I really struggled to get the tick because I didn't have an ABC voice. But I snuck in, I got in, and then 17 years later, I reckon the mould's out the window. Individual voices, individual accents are the go. I think our voice and our accent really helps make us who we are and what we're like. So, yeah, I always encourage ABC reporters not to do the classic news reporter voice.
5: That's ABC Indigenous reporter Tom Forrest. He's from an Aboriginal community in the Kimberley in far northwest Australia. His ABC career has taken him all over the country, giving him a front-row seat to observe the changes in another iconic accent, which linguists call Aboriginal Australian English.
3: When it comes to Aboriginal communities, whether they're speaking Creole or Aboriginal English or their own dialect, that accent definitely changes across the regions. You can tell the difference between the Northern Territory mob and the Kimberley mob, and same as the Queensland mob and the New South Wales. Whenever I interact with other Indigenous people here in New South Wales... Uh, we don't use the same lingo and our accents are definitely different compared to the mob back home in the Kimberley where
5: I'm from. So while Tom makes a point of not changing his voice for the ABC, he says he certainly does in other situations.
3: Being able to like change the way I talk and change my accent is really great. comes in handy to the point where I don't even really think about it, but not everyone can do that. And it absolutely is an obstacle because people can judge you on your accent. They may think you're less educated or not as intellectual. And I've noticed where people probably don't take others as serious because of the way they talk and the accent they use.
5: He's not alone in noticing that certain Aussie voices cause a reaction in the listener, even if they don't know they're doing it. Dr Lokes says researchers have found bias against other cultural variations in Australian voices.
6: There's been some research projects where people will play recordings and say, do you think this person's employable? Do you think this person is a nice person? And if they don't sound like a mainstream speaker, they'll have more negative judgments.
5: While linguists acknowledge Australians can hear the differences in each other's voices, they stop short of calling them all new accents. A big reason for that is precisely because Aussie's voices are changing so quickly.
6: One of the things that we can rely on about languages is that it will change. You know, that, um, that's why older people often have comments on younger people's accents. But it is true that people start commenting on the same features. And so when they start commenting on the same kinds of features, there must be something to it.
1: University of Melbourne linguist Dr Debbie Loke speaking there to our reporter Angus Macintosh. And that's all from myself, Sinead Mangan, and Australia Wides producer Alex Hyman for today. We obviously have both very different voices, and I will speak to you tomorrow. Cheerio. ABC Listen.